You can keep Matthew chapter 3 open as we study it together this morning. Thinking today about the ministry of John the Baptist, the Messiah's messenger, the Messiah's messenger. A couple of weeks ago, Time magazine announced Taylor Swift, uh, their person of the year for 2023. This year's shortlist included Xi Jinping, the, the president of communist China, uh, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, the pioneering artificial intelligence company, and Barbie also made the list after the huge success of uh, the Barbie movie in the summer. You might think, what a very random list that is. Barbie, Xi Jinping, uh, Sam Altman, and Taylor Swift. Uh, but the magazine shortlists people based on the influence that they've had, uh, maybe the success that they've had, not necessarily on how popular or honorable or virtuous they are, but primarily perhaps we could say on the impact that they've had. And so it wasn't surprising that Taylor Swift clinched it after a year in which she has broken all kinds of records for songs and albums downloaded, concerts attended, and probably as well money made. Uh, like her or not, for better or worse, she certainly is one of the most influential people in the world today. If Time magazine had existed in 25 or 30 AD in Roman Judea or Galilee, it's highly likely that John the Baptist would have got the nod for person of the year. Most influential, most talked about, most surprising or controversial person. John the Baptist, some preachers prefer to call him John the Baptizer, uh, but John the Baptist didn't have a long ministry. He didn't preach, we don't think, for years and years, certainly not for decades. In fact, he might only have preached for a few months or a year or two at most. But nonetheless, John carried out a faithful, vital, and very impactful ministry. He prepared the way for the Messiah to come. We've looked already in Matthew's gospel at the Messiah's birth and the dramatic and miraculous circumstances surrounding it. And now, as I mentioned, we, we've, we've hit fast forward. We're 25 years later. Sometimes when you're watching a TV show or a movie, uh, the screen goes black and the words come up five or ten or however many years later. The story is moving on. Uh, and that's what happens here in Matthew chapter 3. The Messiah has been born. He's grown up, as we considered the last time in Matthew's gospel, he's grown up in the obscurity of Nazareth, a, a tiny little village, uh, very few people in it, in the region of Galilee, which was sort of a despised and looked down upon region as far as the Jews were concerned, very rural, uh, people uneducated, people who weren't really up to speed with the Jewish law, uh, bad reputation socially and morally in some portions of it. And this is where the Messiah grew up in total obscurity. And he's now a man of about 30 years of age. And it's almost time for the Messiah to make his public appearance and to begin his ministry. But before he does, John prepares the way. And so we want to think today about the ministry of John the Baptist and some important aspects of it. Let's think, first of all, about the message of John's ministry. The message of John's ministry. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, the first thing we're told about John is not that he came baptizing, which, of course, is what he's best known for, John the Baptist, 
the clues in the name. Uh, but rather notice verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching. John came preaching. Uh, preaching, of course, is one of the most important words used just over 60 times, some version of it in the New Testament. The ministry of John, friends, just like the ministry of Jesus, as we'll see when we get there in a few weeks, and just like the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts, the ministry of John was first and foremost a preaching ministry. Yes, John baptized people, obviously. But he baptized them because they responded to his preaching, to his message. And this remains an important principle even for the church today, that the message that we proclaim is central. It is to have priority. Everything else that we do as a church flows from that. This is why, for example, last week when we observed the Lord's Supper before we came to the table, the, the message of Christ was preached, as it always should be, uh, before the sacraments are observed. In the same way, John did not simply come doing things without any explanation. He didn't just start baptizing people. He came first and foremost preaching to them. Now, the word here means to announce or to proclaim. That's what preaching is. It's what it should be. It's not someone standing up and giving you good life advice. It's not just storytelling. Uh, preaching is the act of delivering a message. The preacher does not, in a sense, decide the content. We are to preach what God's word says, what God himself has said. And that's what John did. What was John's message? We'll look at verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A short, simple, but searching and demanding message. Repent. So we've considered before, boys and girls, I've said to you in particular, uh, repentance means turning around. Some of you are in the boys' brigade or the girls' brigade, and you know what it is to do an about turn. That's repentance. You've been going one way, you turn around and you start going a different way. And look at the reason that John gives as to why his listeners, who were, of course, particularly uh, Jewish people, uh, why was it that they were to repent? Verse 2, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the other Gospels, it tends to be referred to as the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew often calls it the kingdom of heaven, but he's referring to the same thing. Uh, when some writers suggest that perhaps Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven to emphasize that it, it comes as completely, literally, out of this world that is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. It's a very important theme in Matthew's gospel. We'll, we'll explore it more fully in weeks to come, God willing. Uh, but in a nutshell, what John is saying here is that the kingdom is near, the kingdom is coming, because the king is coming. Uh, some writers suggest that for us, we, we'd be better to have the word kingship rather than kingdom here because when we think of a kingdom, we think of a place. We live in the United Kingdom. It's a place on the map. Uh, and most other kingdoms that you would think of, either real or fictional, uh, they were located in a place. But the kingship of Jesus Christ is something different. It's not bound to a, a time or a place. The kingdom of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ and in his coming into the world. The Messiah is coming. 
John, John was preaching. That was his message. And that was why people needed to repent. And this was a bold message to preach to these Jewish people because as we've already considered in Matthew's gospel, the Jewish people in this time and place had their own ideas about what kind of Messiah they wanted or what kind of kingdom they needed. Notice that the Pharisees and Sadducees came to hear John preach to see what he was doing. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along. They didn't agree on important matters, including things like the resurrection and the authority of uh, certain parts of Scripture. But both groups have come here to investigate John, to see what John is all about. And both of these groups consider themselves the best of the Jewish people, uh, the most educated. Some of, the, some of them, certainly the Sadducees, were uh, the most wealthy, best dressed, most religious, law-abiding teachers and influencers. And what does John say to them? Verse 7, you brood of vipers, snakes, untrustworthy, deceptive, cowardly people, repent. And if he hadn't insulted them enough already, he goes further in verse 9. He says to them, do not presume to say to yourselves, and this is no doubt not just to the Pharisees and Sadducees, but to other Jews who thought this as well. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What's John talking about there? Why does he start talking about Abraham? Well, friends, he's attacking their idols. He's telling them specifically in their case what they needed to repent from or to turn from. And for them, it was this false sense of security that simply being born Jewish was enough to get them into the kingdom of God. We have Abraham as our father. They thought that was all they needed. Yes, maybe to some degree or other, make an effort to keep the law, but really we're, we're, we're sons of Abraham. What more do we need to be? We're the chosen race. And John says, no. You need to repent of your pride. You need to repent of your self-sufficiency. You need to repent of your man-made religion. You need to prepare for the coming of your true king, the, the Messiah, the chosen one. Now, of course, John had a unique ministry. Uh, there was never quite li anyone like John before him or after him. He was, you, might, you could say he was the last of the Old Testament prophets, but in a sense, he wasn't even that. He was a bridge from the Old Testament uh, to Jesus. And in that sense, there's no one quite like him today. But his message is actually, at its core, the same message that we are to be proclaiming today, friends. And like John, we need boldness to proclaim it because there are things that men and women and boys and girls need to repent of, to turn away from today, that they don't want to repent of and don't think they need to turn away from. We're well aware by now of the foolishness and yet the danger of the extremist LGBT agenda and all the damage that that's doing in wider society, the damage it potentially could do in schools. Obviously, that needs to be repented of. But I would imagine that for most people listening to this sermon today, those kinds of things aren't the main issue. 
Perhaps self-indulgence is what we need to repent of. And I say that in what can actually be one of the most self-indulgent times of the year. Our TV adverts and social media adverts are screaming at us about all the things we need to buy and all the food and drink we need to consume. There's nothing sinful about enjoying a big meal together with our families. Don't get me wrong. Very much looking forward to that myself next week. But we're in a culture that is prone to excess and to self-indulgence, to getting as much as we can, as soon as we can, as often as we can. Perhaps for some of us, we need to repent of impatience or frustration. It's a very busy time of year. There's a lot going on. People perhaps trying to get work finished up before a break, trying to get school finished up before a break, getting all the plans in place, getting everything ready. But none of that should excuse anger or impatience. Snapping at colleagues, losing our temper with our spouse or our children or our brothers and sisters. Perhaps for some of us we need to repent of laziness, spiritually, if not in other ways. We would say we're too tired to read a chapter of scripture or to pray, but we can scroll through our phones for minutes or hours at a time. And yet all that scrolling is likely to run the risk of other sins, covetousness, jealousy. I don't look like that. I don't have that. I wasn't invited to that. My home, my life doesn't look like that. Many people, of course, today need to repent because they have entirely ignored the message of the coming of the King, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. His name has been sung and will be sung over the next few days. Some of the details of his birth will be recounted, but will people be repenting in response to hearing those things? This is the message, friends, that we're to proclaim as we catch up with a neighbor, as we get together with family, as we, as we chat at the school gate, we're to be proclaiming Christ, that the King has come and that he calls us to follow him and that that, for, that will mean turning away from other things in order to follow him. And indeed, it involves telling people that he's coming again. John prepared for his first coming. We need to prepare people for his second coming, his coming in judgment. And men and women ahead of that judgment and boys and girls need to know that they must repent. Have you done that? Have you repented? Are you repenting? That's the Christian life. It's daily repentance. And are you proclaiming that as you have opportunity to those around us? So the, the message of John's ministry. Secondly, uh, the sign of John's ministry. The sign of John's ministry. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Again, let's notice John preaches, and these people hear and believe and respond to the preaching, and they receive an appropriate sign of all that they have heard and committed themselves to, and that sign being water baptism. Now, we should say that the act of baptism in, in the sense of cleansing, and, and even perhaps for some the idea of cleansing from sin, it wasn't an entirely new concept for the Jews in John's day. For various reasons and at various times, 
fervent and zealous Jews would carry out what you might call ablutions. That is that they would wash themselves, not just for the sake of getting off dirt or for the sake of smelling a bit better, but for religious reasons, perhaps ahead of some feast or festival, perhaps perhaps in response to confession of sin, they would perhaps cleanse themselves. And various washings and sprinklings and cleansings were commanded in the Old Testament scriptures for different occasions. But the difference here is that those who come to John are baptized by him in response to his call to a life of repentance. He gives them this outward sign of something that was to be inwardly true, that they are convicted in their hearts of the need of cleansing and of turning from sin, and they commit themselves to the kingdom of God. Notice, however, what John says in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here we see the great faithfulness and humility of John, friends. Here he is, this this great figure, this preacher that people are flocking to from a wide area to come and hear him preach. But they come to him and he preaches to them and he points them to someone else, someone even greater than he is, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, generally speaking, it's understood by Reformed preachers and, and commentators over the years that the baptism of John is not actually the same baptism that we have in the church today, because the, the baptism that we have in the church today is the baptism of Jesus Christ. It was inaugurated by Jesus at the Great Commission. He said to his disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize uh, your followers into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the baptism that we have today. John's baptism was something separate and different. And there's evidence for that in the book of Acts. On one occasion, Paul comes across people who were baptized into John the Baptist ministry. And Paul says they need to be baptized again. And part of the reason is because John was pointing people ahead to Jesus. And it's his ministry and his work and his salvation and his baptism that we need. Nonetheless, of course, there is a lot of similarity between the baptism in the church today and the baptism of John. Uh, There's the outward sign of water baptism. It is the same outward sign. And it's a sign of, of something that is true spiritually, that only the Lord Jesus can bring inward change. The Lord Jesus Christ pours out the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who changes the hearts of men and women and boys and girls so that as the word of God is preached, as the gospel is preached, that they want to repent that they're cut to the heart and they say, as others did in days gone by, what must I do to be saved? That's the work of the Spirit. That's the work of Jesus Christ pouring out the Spirit in the lives of sinners. And so in all that we say and do as the church friends, we, like John, we are to, we are to ourselves, in a sense, be a sign, and we are to point people to something greater than ourselves. John himself, his message and his baptism, everything about John, he was a living, breathing signpost to the Lord Jesus. And 
what Jesus would do and what Jesus would say and who Jesus was. In John's Gospel, so a different John, but in John's Gospel in chapter 3, John the Baptist describes himself as being like the best man at a wedding. The wedding guests hopefully enjoy the input of the best man. He hopefully gets a few laughs in his speech. He plays an important role for the groom. But he is there in service of the groom. It would be very bizarre if the, if the best man insisted on in having the first dance with the bride at the evening party, for example. He is there to serve the groom. He's not there to make it all about himself. And John the Baptist was a signpost. He was there to serve, to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. This great man, Jesus on one occasion said, among those born of women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. He had this great ministry, this crucial ministry. And he, people flocked to hear him. But he says here in verse 11, the one coming after me, I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He is so much greater. His baptism that spiritual baptism is so much greater because he baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And so friends, ultimately we're to be like John, we're to be signposts to Jesus Christ and to the, the work that only he can do in the hearts of sinners. Men and women need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, otherwise we're dead in sin. And it's when we hear Jesus proclaimed, when we hear the call to repentance preached, that God by his Spirit revives the hearts of sinners. He causes what is spiritually dead to come to life. He gives us new desires. So that we do, if we haven't before as, as adults or children, we do want to receive that outward sign of the inward change. And we do want to turn away from our sin and we do want to commit ourselves to Christ and his church because he has taken away our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. This is what men and women and children need. More than we need a holiday. More than we need presents. More than we need our preacher to be a great or impressive preacher. Or our church to be a great or impressive church. Or to have a great or impressive church building. We need to tell people about the one who is greater than any of those things. The one who is mightier than any of us. You can pour out his spirit and cause dead sinners to come to life. Imagine you're out walking in the hills somewhere on a really hot spring or summer day. Hard to imagine at this time of year, perhaps, but do your best. You've been walking for a long time and you're gasping for a drink. And thankfully, eventually, you see a little sign that says that there's a shop a quarter of a mile ahead. So you keep going and uh, and you get there, what you don't do is you don't stop at the sign and expect that water somehow is going to come out of the sign. You don't need the sign, you need what the sign points you towards. And we as Christians, friends, we are to be living signposts to the one who is greater than us. We don't make it all about us. We point people toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, John the Baptist Recorded for us in John's Gospel, he says in John 3.30, He must increase, I must decrease. So we talk to people who are perhaps lonely. People who are perhaps anxious. People who are perhaps addicted. 
people who are perhaps just caught up in the cares and material concerns of the world. We don't come to them with any suggestion that we have all the answers and that we're greater than them and we're better than them and that if they just stick to us, they'll be okay. We come and we tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, our lives should show people to some degree that there's something we can help them with. There's there's good news that we have for them. But we must decrease and Christ must increase. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you eager to see and savor him in his word each day? Do you want to become more like him? Do you want to be a signpost for others to learn more about him? Only when we exalt Christ above all others, only when he is the greatest love and chief delight of our lives are others likely to be signposted toward him. So the message of John's ministry, the sign of John's ministry, and then thirdly and finally today, the manner of John's ministry, the manner of John's ministry. How would we sum John up? What is it that stood out about him in particular? Well, there's three things to mention briefly about the manner of his ministry. First of all, notice that it was a wilderness ministry. It was a wilderness ministry. Chapter 3, verse 1 says that John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And as Matthew shows us here in verse 3, this was part of the fulfillment of the prophecies that John would come. Uh, If you look there at verse 3, this is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, which says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So it was predicted, it was prophesied that John would come and preach in the wilderness. And the wilderness is significant for a couple of reasons. John is having people come out of the towns and cities, particularly the city of Jerusalem, to come to hear him preach. John was effectively telling people, there are no answers for you in the towns and cities in which you live, in Jerusalem in particular. Jerusalem was the home of the political and religious elite The Herod family, the Jewish temple, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you could find them all in Jerusalem. You remember the Magi went to Jerusalem first when they were searching for the newborn king. Because that was where the the, that was the center of religious and national life for the Jews. But John doesn't go to Jerusalem. John goes out into the wilderness because there are no answers for the people in Jerusalem amongst the religious leaders and political leaders of their day. As well as that, though, the wilderness in Scripture, it often represents a place of new beginnings. The nation of Israel, in a sense, began its existence in the wilderness. If you like, their baptism, in a sense, was coming through the Red Sea, although, of course, the water didn't touch them, but they passed through the water, and they were brought into the the wilderness. And that, in a sense, was their birth as a nation, new beginnings. You could even say that the surface of the earth was a wilderness at creation. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the earth was formless and void and dark. And then came a new beginning. And as at creation and as in the Exodus, so now John is saying, here in the wilderness there is a new beginning. Forget about the old ways of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish establishment and the Jewish temple. Something new is here. 
So it was a wilderness ministry. It was also a weird ministry. It was weird. John the Baptist was a bit weird. Look at verse 4. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John looked a bit weird. He wasn't wearing the latest big name fashion labels. He, wasn't, he didn't have even a typical diet. He was wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey standing out in the wilderness. And everything about that made a bit of a statement to the people. And for one thing, it reminded the Jewish people of Elijah. Second Kings chapter 1 verse 8 says that Elijah also wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt. Malachi verses four and five, sorry, Malachi chapter four verse five, which we read earlier, says that Elijah would come before the day of the Messiah. Again, a prophecy about John. John is, if you like, the second, this new Elijah, and he stands out, and he's a bit strange looking, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's not in Jerusalem, and he's dressed in this very strange old way. It's a weird ministry. But the last thing to notice about it is that it was a warning ministry. It was a warning ministry. I've thought a little bit about John's words in verse 11 already, that the Lord Jesus would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit. But notice John doesn't just say that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, he also says that he will baptize with fire. Fire. And the fire that John is talking about here, friends, is the fire of judgment. Those who repent receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit upon them. Those who don't repent, the fire of God's judgment will be poured out upon them. And John actually mentions fire several times in this passage. If you look at verse 10, he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Ultimately, if we're not producing the fruit of repentance, if we're not living a life consistent with someone who claims to be following Christ, turning away from sin, loving the Lord Jesus, then we haven't really been baptized with the Spirit at all. Even if we've received the outward sign of water baptism as a child or an adult, the proof comes in the fruit of our lives. Dead branches go into the fire. Unrepentant sinners face the fire of God's wrath in hell. John provides another warning at the end of the passage, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's listeners would have been familiar with this picture harvest time, uh, the farmers, if there was a bit of a breeze, they would get a big fork and they would throw the wheat up into the air because the chaff was lighter, just the empty husks and kernels. They would be blown away by the wind and the, the heavier wheat with the fruit in it uh, would fall back to the ground and so the wheat and the chaff would be separated. And if the farmer couldn't get all the chaff off the floor of his barn, he would, just, he would separate it more painstakingly and he would burn it. And John says that Jesus comes with a baptism of fire for those who do not repent, and it will be unending, unquenchable fire. 
So what's John's ministry like? It's a wilderness ministry, it's a bit of a weird ministry, and it's a warning ministry. And again, friends, although John was unique, there are these ways in which we are a bit like him in the church today. John stood out in the wilderness telling people that they weren't going to find answers in the places where they had been looking. And that's exactly what the church is to be doing today. Yes, we're to go and we're to get alongside people. Yes, there are times and places where, to use that phrase, we meet people where they are, physically or literally or emotionally. But we also have to say to them at times, you're not going to find what you're looking for in another night out, another popular post on your social media pages, another Christmas holiday or another summer holiday that you book in January as soon as Christmas is over. There's a sense in which the church is to be that voice in the wilderness. We're to be, we're to be and we're to talk about something entirely different from what the world is chasing after and looking for. And that might well make us seem a little bit weird at times. But friends, we will not reach the world by looking and sounding just like the world. Now, this doesn't mean we have to go out of our way to be total oddballs, which perhaps uh, is the case sometimes with some Christians that they're more weird than they need to be, quite frankly. But we're called to live lives of holiness and godliness. Our message is different. Therefore, our lives must be different because they're lives of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If the world finds that weird, so be it. Because we're also to be a warning to the world, as John was. John was preparing people for the first coming of the Messiah. We're to warn people about the second coming of the Messiah. People don't just need to know that he was born in Bethlehem. They need to know as well that he died at Calvary and that he rose from the dead and that he is coming back. And if you have not been baptized by his spirit, which simply is another way of saying that, we, that, we've, that we've come to faith, that we, we are now following Christ, because that's what happens when we become Christians. We, we receive the spirit. It's not a flash of lightning. It's, it's not some dramatic moment where suddenly you can do things that before you couldn't. But it's, it's Jesus Christ changing our hearts, changing our lives. And if that has not happened, that unending, eternal, conscious torment that the Bible calls hell is the only baptism left for you to receive. His winnowing fork is in his hand. The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. Are you repentant? Are you ready? And are we, like John, proclaiming, as we have opportunity, the message of the Messiah? Amen.